0: Hey Amen. You may be seated. And as we're getting settled, go ahead and uh, take up your Bibles. And I invite you to meet me in Acts chapter 13, where we're actually going to start reading from verse 13. And once again, Acts 13, verse 13, will take you all the way through verse 41 uh, this morning. If you are new to FAC, perhaps this is your first time here or you've been coming the last several weeks uh, and you're unfamiliar with who I am. My name is Mike Keserowski. I'm the lead pastor here at FAC. We're glad that you're here and uh, I would love the awesome privilege of meeting you and getting to know you. And I mean that because I want you to know me. I want to be more than just a talking head from the pulpit. And so uh, would you take the opportunity after service just to come up? I'm usually hanging out up front here after service. Just say hi and uh, I'd love to get to know you. But um, let's just turn to God's Word this morning, and uh, then we'll ask Him to form us. Acts 13, starting in verse 13 through 41. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Let's pray. And Father, as we devote the next several minutes to examining your word, would you edify us with your truth? May we be refreshed, melted, convicted, comforted, and without excuse in neglecting your grace and mercy. In your son's name we pray. Amen. About 12 years ago, there was a documentary um, released called Expelled uh, that had uh, the subtitle, I think it was something like No Intelligence Allowed. Uh, It starred Ben Stein, of all people, and it traced his journey to explore how academia, uh, the sphere of academia, responds to those who believe in intelligent design. Or in other words, those who believe in an intelligent creator, that God created uh, all things. And, and one of the final scenes of this documentary has stuck with me through the years because uh, Ben Stein had a chance to sit down and interview Richard Dawkins. And so you have uh, Ben Stein, who is Jewish, who believes in intelligent design—that that there's an intelligent creator, that there's God—and uh, he's going, he goes toe to toe with Richard Dawkins, who is an atheist, uh, evolutionary biologist. And during the interview, Dawkins makes it very plain and clear that he does not believe in any kind of God of any kind and that the probability of there being a God is virtually nil. And at the end of the interview, Ben Stein asks Richard Dawkins, well, what would happen if you die and you just ran into God? What would you say? And Richard Dawkins uh, proceeds to quote another atheist, a, a British mathematician from the early 1900s named Bertrand Russell. And Dawkins explains that Bertrand Russell had this question put to him, and Russell would have responded this way to God, Sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? However, as we examine Scripture and even the scientific and historical evidence uh, apart from Scripture, we actually come to find that God didn't go into such pains to hide himself, but actually to reveal himself. From the beginning of time, God has been revealing himself in history. Christianity is a religion of revelation, if you will. It's a religion that actually doesn't speak of our pursuit of God, but rather God's pursuit of us. Throughout all history, God has been revealing to us who he is, and he pursues us by revealing himself to us. In this passage, we see Paul deliver a sermon in a synagogue, and he uses history as a way to communicate this with his listeners, that God has been revealing himself to us. And he reminds them how God through history has done this. And then he goes on to share the ultimate revelation of God, the person of Jesus. We'll take a look at Paul's sermon in depth. But before we get into his sermon, I want to catch us up to speed. We've been traveling through Acts. If you're just joining us, I want to catch you up to speed of where we are in the journey. If you recall from last week, we saw that our characters, we last left them off on the island of Cyprus in the capital city of Paphos. In verse 13 here, we see that they set sail from Paphos and come to Perga in this region called Pamphylia. This would have been about a 112-mile journey for them, and at this point, they're now about 400 miles away from Jerusalem. Um, Now, we come to find that after they arrive in this region of Pamphylia, that John Mark, their third companion, actually left them and went back to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know why he left, but that verb used is actually a pretty soft translation. Another word that you could use for left is that he actually abandoned them. John abandoned them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, we never know why he actually left them and abandoned them, but we do know that later on in Acts that Paul was actually personally disgruntled by this. If you fast forward to Acts 15, Paul is back in Jerusalem, we'll get there, uh, and he wants to revisit all of the cities that he went to on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. And Barnabas insists that they bring John Mark with them. And Paul refused to take John Mark with them. And the reason he gave them uh, gave was because he had deserted them on their prior journey. We'll explore that story more when we come to it. But in the meantime, we have to understand that our missionaries have now gone from a party of three down to a party of two or left with just Paul and Barnabas. Now, we don't know what happened in the ministry that happened in Perga, right? Luke, uh, who wrote Acts, is silent about what happened there, uh, but he does go into detail at their next destination. Um, They travel from Perga up to Antioch in Pisidia. Don't get this confused with the prior Antioch that we've talked about in Syria. This is a completely different city. This is Antioch in Pisidia. And once again, I believe that we've got an updated map up there if you're a visual learner and like to track their expedition. Uh, th- this uh, travel to Antioch would be about 100 miles north. And once they arrive to Antioch, we find that Paul and Barnabas continue their pattern of visiting the synagogues. Uh, the very first Saturday, the Sabbath comes along, and they, they visit the synagogue. And what we find here in the following verses is a service in the synagogue that actually follows a fairly normal pattern, right? They they read the law, which would have been the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would typically read from there. And then they would read from one of the prophets. And it was common, after the readings of the Scriptures for the leaders of the synagogue to allow one of the men in attendance give what was called a word of exhortation, or, or a word of encouragement. And so what we find here is that Paul and Barnabas' reputation seems to have preceded them uh, as these synagogue leaders consider them prominent Jewish men. And in verse 15, they essentially give Paul and Barnabas the floor to speak. Now, think about that for a second. I don't know about you, but I think that one of the hardest parts in engaging in gospel conversation is just starting it. Right? It's taking off in the conversation. It's like you're in a plane, and you're staring down that runway, and somehow you need to get about 100,000 pounds of steel up in the air off the ground. Gospel conversations are weighty, and it's challenging just to start, especially without hitting some turbulence or geese, for that matter, on your way up. But here the synagogue leaders offer up a softball to Paul, and he hits it out of the park. Hey, Paul, would you like to offer a word of encouragement? Paul, would you like to share your insight? these passages boy would I you don't know what you've gotten yourself into And we get this idea that uh, what Paul probably said um, here is what he's this was his pattern in the synagogues right they would go from synagogue to synagogue and we get a sampling if you will of how Paul engaged them in conversation and he begins by recounting Israel's history Uh, and more specifically he's recounting God's involvement in Israel's history. He does this purposefully. You see, what he's doing is he's setting them up for the punchline. He's using their history as an illustration for the whole point of his sermon. He's preparing them to hear the gospel, to hear about Jesus, because as we're going to find, everything in Israel's history points to Jesus. If you recall from last week even, we talked about how important it is for us to have an intelligent explanation for the hope that we have in Jesus. And this is what Paul is doing in action. He's starting where the Jewish people are in their understanding and working through history and then making an argument from their history that Jesus is their Savior. And so let's take a brief look at God's involvement in history in verses 17 through 23. We don't have time to go into all of these in depth. This is rich text. There is so much to be learned here. uh, But I would encourage you to explore these stories and how they fit into God's greater narrative as a whole on your own in the Old Testament, in your own time of study. Um, But Paul does remind them at the beginning that God chose the fathers of the people of Israel. Does this mean that God had a special covenant with their forefather, Abraham? God said, Abraham, I choose you. And he entered into this relationship with Abraham. And through this covenant, he promised him three things. First, God promised Abraham that he would give him a great land. Second, he promised Abraham that he would give him descendants. And third, he promised Abraham that this great nation would be a blessing to all the earth. And as Paul continues, we see that God did make the nation of Israel great in number in Egypt. And then he delivered them out of Egypt and and brought them into the promised land. And, and, And God was just resilient. In his in in the fulfillment of his promise, here he talks about it. Right after leaving leaving Egypt, the Israelites rebelled with God, and I love this. Just, Paul says God put up with Israel. He just, he just put up with you guys. You were rebellious. You didn't deserve it, and God just put up with you and gave you the land of Israel anyway. And not only that. He didn't just put up with the rebellious Israelites, but he also defeated nations that stood in their way. Seven, to be exact. God fights on behalf of Israel, even though Israel doesn't deserve it, and ends up giving Israel their land as an inheritance, just like he promised. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that the Israelites still didn't learn their lesson. Right? They, they continued to rebel against God. Paul explains in verse 21 that centuries after they're in the promised land, they asked for a king from the prophet Samuel. And it's not mentioned here, but if you were to revisit that passage, the reason they wanted a human king was because they rejected God as their king. But despite their rejection and their rebellion, God still gives them a king in Saul. And then he gives them another one in David. Now, David is one of the most important figures in Scripture and in the history of Israel because God gave promises to David like he did to Abraham. The promises to David um, in, in some ways are an elaboration on the promises made Abraham. It takes a very general promise that God gave to Abraham that his nation would be a blessing to the whole world and it makes it more specific. God dials in on his promises. He he reveals more of what his intentions are with Israel and uh, more specifically David. So uh, how is the nation of Israel going to be a blessing to the world? This is where God's promises come in to David. God promises David that from his line he would establish a kingdom that lasts forever. And not only that, in this kingdom there will be a throne, and on that throne will sit a king who will also last forever. And this eternal king who will rule this eternal kingdom will come from David's family line. And then Paul, in verse 23, makes the incredible link between David and Jesus. What does Paul say in reference to David? Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, just as he promised, just as he said he would. So what exactly is Paul doing here? Paul is showing them the progress of their history and how God's hand has moved through it. Paul is communicating how God has systematically unveiled his purposes as he works through history. And you'll notice that God is the subject in the first part of Paul's sermon. This is all about God and his activity, that he has a plan for creation through human history, that he is actively engaged so that his purposes may be fulfilled. This should bring us great hope in a world like today because any average person these days may feel as though the world is heading for self-destruction, especially in an election year in the middle of a pandemic. One commentator writes that many live in cynicism and despair as Savior after Savior fails to satisfy the human thirst for an eternally secure solution to the problems of life. We look to men and women to be our saviors in hope that they will somehow deliver us from impending doom. And none of them, none of them have saved us from that awful feeling that this world has a dismal and bleak demise coming down the pike. But Paul says not so. God has not abandoned his creation to let it run its own destructive course. No, despite Israel's rebellion, God had a plan and acted according to his plan. And he has gradually unveiled his plan to us as humans. Once again, this should give us great hope to know that God is still actively involved, that God still has a plan, and that God will see that plan through. Paul is showing these Jewish men and women how God worked through history, how he gave them promises, and how all of his work and all of his promises point to Jesus. Jesus is the climax of all human History. He is the climax of all history and created order. God's intervention, God's activity comes to its ultimate fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is not some sort of afterthought. It's not plan B or C for God. He's not just another event. He's the event in history. He's not just another dot on the crowded timeline of history. No, Jesus' coming is what God has always promised and what he has always intended from the beginning. And if God has revealed himself throughout history, then Jesus is the culmination of such revelation. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. He is the full revelation of God. He is the final revelation of God. Colossians 2.9 speaks to this. For in Christ, all the fullness of the, of the deity lives in bodily form. Earlier on in Colossians 1.15, it says, the Son, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And so God, to this point in history, has been revealing Himself, but He's done it in such an invisible nature. He's always acted in an invisible nature. But now, God acts in the physical flesh of Jesus Christ. And Paul wants his Jewish listeners to see that just as God has revealed himself to them throughout their history, he has finally revealed himself to them in the flesh through Jesus. Paul carries on and basically says that since Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of everything that God has done in history, let me tell you who he is and what he's come to offer. Verse 26, Jesus brings a message of salvation. He has come to save us. This is Jesus' entire mission. He is on a a rescue mission. The main reason that Jesus came was to save people from their sins. Many people in our day distort this, right? What did Jesus come here to do? Did he come to be a great teacher? Did he come to amaze us with his... Miracles? Did he come to give us a purpose-driven life? Did he come to politically liberate? Did he come to care and provide for the poor and needy? Perhaps. But above all of those things, Jesus came to save sinners. And how did Jesus obtain such salvation? Paul explains, uh, gives this explanation of salvation. And he explains the events that transpired that allow the salvation to be obtained. And to quote the Gospel of John, the light, meaning Jesus, shines on the darkness, and the darkness doesn't understand it. The darkness doesn't comprehend it. And what do we do with things that we don't comprehend or that we don't understand? A lot of times we fear it. And this is what happened in Jerusalem. Paul explains in verses 27 and 28 that the leaders in Jerusalem didn't recognize Jesus as the complete revelation of God. And even worse, they didn't understand the prophets that they read every week that pointed to Jesus as the complete revelation of God. Paul draws attention to the irony of all of this. Paul is saying, hey, the prophets point to Jesus. And so you read about Jesus every single week, yet he appeared to you in the flesh, right under your eyes, right under your nose, right in front of you, and you missed him. All of your history points to Jesus, to to this man, and you missed it. And so they condemned him by killing him. Hanging him on a cursed tree and laying him in a tomb. But the story doesn't end there. Verse 30, Paul says, but God. But God. One of the most powerful, significant two words in scripture. But God stepped in. But God intervened. But God acted and raised Jesus from the dead. And then Paul gives his defense. He says, we know that he was raised from the dead because there were eyewitnesses, and I was one of them. I have seen the risen Jesus. He appeared to people in the flesh, hundreds of them. And after Paul explains who those eyewitnesses are, he he goes to quote uh, several different passages from the Old Testament. The first one is Psalm chapter 2. The second is Isaiah 55, 3. And the third is Psalm 16. Paul is making the argument that not only do these eyewitnesses bear testimony of a risen Jesus, but your very scriptures that you read every week here on the Sabbath, they also bear testimony to a risen Jesus. Paul makes the connection to David. And it's important to remember the promises that God made to David that I mentioned earlier. Right, God promises David that from his line, he would establish a kingdom forever. And that in this kingdom, there would be a throne. And that throne will have a king who will sit on the throne forever. This is an eternal king who will rule an eternal kingdom that will come from your family line, David. See, in quoting these passages, Paul puts the pieces together to reveal the full picture. He says, Jesus is the recipient of the holy and sure blessings of, of David. He is the fulfillment of those promises made to David, and he will not see corruption. Or in other word uh, you could use is decay. See, Paul's telling him, hey, you know that superhero of yours, David, that you all love and admire and look up to so much? Well, guess what? One day he died. He fell asleep. He buried him. The worms ate his body. He decayed. He served his purpose. He served it well. And then he died and saw decay. But Jesus, who God raised up, according to Paul, did not see corruption. His body did not see decay. And it's critical that his body did not decay. Why? Because Jesus has to sit on the throne forever in the flesh, just as God promised to King David, this is how salvation was obtained. Jesus died, he rose again, and now he sits on the throne for eternity in the flesh. So what does this all mean for us? Paul doesn't just give them a bunch of information and say, all right, do what you will with it. No, he actually doesn't stop there. He makes an appeal to his listeners in verse 38. He extends an invitation to respond. In verse 38, Paul says, Let it be known to you, therefore. Whenever you see that word, therefore, it connects what was just said with what he's about to say. It's critical when you see the word, therefore, in Scripture that you understand what has come before it, and we've just walked through that, and we understand it. Basically, Paul is saying, hey, in light of all of this, in light of the fact that God has worked through our history and has made promises to us and has fulfilled those promises through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. You want to know how this applies to you? Forgiveness of sins is available. It's available. And everyone who believes in Jesus and puts their trust in Jesus is freed. Take notice that it's not a politician that frees us. It's not a family member that frees us. It's not a culture that frees us. It's not even a heritage or a tradition that frees us. It's not even morality, being a good person, that frees us. No, by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed. Another word that you could put in that translation for the word "freed" is actually the word "justified." This is the idea that we get from this passage. is, is We're really talking about justification. To be freed means to be justified. Justification is a legal term. That means to be declared righteous. It was one of Paul's favorite words that he used. See, the illustration that we get is that we're sitting in a court of law and we are sitting in the seat of the defendant. We're the ones with the, with the orange garb on and we're the ones that are chained at our, at our hands and that are chained to our feet. And we are sitting there knowing that we have a guilty verdict in our sin. We must be freed from this charge by him, by Jesus. Everyone who believes is freed, is justified, is declared righteous. We were guilty, but God intervened. We were guilty, but then we trust Jesus alone. And the judge reads off the new verdict. Innocent. Innocent. You are justified, made innocent, made righteous by faith alone in Jesus Christ and nothing else because nothing has the power to save you. This is what Paul gets at in the second half of verse 39. By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Jesus saved you in all the ways that the law couldn't. Jesus saved you in all the ways that morality can't. You see, the law was put in place so that you could try and meet God's standards, so that you could be good enough in the eyes of God. And Paul is saying, you can't be good enough to meet God's standards. And so he did it for you on your behalf in Jesus. The law is utterly inadequate to save. Doesn't matter how good of a person you are, you are still guilty in the eyes of God unless you believe in Jesus. You see, when we believe and are justified uh, by Jesus, a great trade happens at the cross. We trade our sin. I trade my sin for his righteousness. At the cross, Jesus took on all of my sin so that I could take on all of his righteousness. This is why Jesus had to be perfect. If he wasn't perfect, then I couldn't take on all of his righteousness to meet God's perfect standard. And so when that day comes, when we come face to face with God the Father, he no longer sees my sin. He no longer sees my guilty nature. He sees Jesus' righteousness. He sees how Jesus fulfilled all of his righteous requirements in my life for me. But if we don't believe in Jesus, there is still a guilty verdict on my hands that I am bound Two. I have not been freed from the guilty verdict. And those who are still guilty will be sentenced to punishment as Christ was on the cross. This is the final warning that Paul gives in verses 40 to 41. And we'll close with a very stern warning from Paul himself. He quotes a, another prophet, Habakkuk. Habakkuk 1.5 specifically is what he quotes. And Paul says, hey, don't be like your forefathers. Don't, don't be like those Israelites that didn't listen to the prophets. They were scoffers. They mocked God. They laughed at God. They had contempt for his ways. And so God punished them by allowing Babylon to come in and have their way with Israel. Paul, once again, points to history and uses it as an illustration to highlight a point. Failure to embrace what God is doing leads to judgment. Failure to embrace what God has done in Jesus will lead to judgment. But, oh, the assurance of salvation the assurance of forgiveness that we have in Jesus. And so would you in this very moment, if you have not done this, if you still have the guilty verdict, would you believe in Jesus and have faith in him and his sacrifice so that you may be justified and free? from all of the condemnation that comes with our sin. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, um, that not just this world is bigger than ourselves, but all of human history is so much bigger. Father, we are ants when it comes to your activity and your involvement in the world. And so we praise you, Father, that as tiny and small as we are you are still mindful of us we praise you lord that you have had your hand on human history and you still have your hand on human history and so father would you just would you would you would you draw us to you you have revealed yourself to us father but some of us are like the scoffers some of us still mock you and hurl insults at you, and are obstinate against you, and subordinate against you. And so I ask, Father, would you soften our hearts so that we may embrace the full revelation of who you are in the person of Jesus Christ, the Word in the flesh. Father, would you go before us and be with us? In your holy name I pray. Amen.